morning. My name is Daniel. I'm one of the members here. It's my privilege to open God's Word for you this morning um, from Jeremiah 32, as was just read. Again, I'll encourage you, if um, you can have your Bibles open, that'll be really helpful. Um, you want to make sure that what I'm preaching is what the text says. And we got a lot of text. I had Mac only read a portion in the middle, but there's a lot to go through. So if you'll have it open in front of you, you can follow along really well. Um, let me pray for us, and then we'll jump in. Dear Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you that you've given us this anecdote from Jeremiah's life as a, a sign of seeing how we can have hope. I pray that you would help me to preach it faithfully, um, that you would overcome any deficiencies and weaknesses in my preaching, and that your spirit would really speak through this passage to the hearts of the listeners. In Jesus' name, amen. Happy New Year's Eve. This time of year, many of us often reflect back on the year that's ending and look forward to the year to come. It's been quite a year. We've had a Taylor Swift Eras tour. We've had Barbenheimer. Um, I always look forward to Spotify Wrapped at the beginning of December and the opportunity to reflect on my music listening over the year. On a more sobering note, the war in Ukraine continues this year, and we have an ongoing war in Gaza that started this year. It's been a year full of finance news, good and bad. It's been a year full of political news. So we're gearing up for an election year next year. And presumably, many of you, like me, are reflecting on personal events from the past year as well. There's some happy events that happened in the life of our church. There were weddings. There were new babies born. There are people expecting new babies next year. There were graduations. And there were some sad events. Many of you may have experienced the death of a loved one in 2023 or relational challenges, or economic difficulties. And some events are a little bit of both. You have a move, you have a job change, that can involve a great mix of emotions. Or maybe your year is defined less by what happened, and more by what didn't happen. Maybe 2023 was a year of unfulfilled desires. Perhaps, you know, you desire good, godly things like a spouse or a child. Perhaps you're wrestling with continual sin struggles. And you think, maybe 2023 would have been the year I got over that sin, and it seems like it wasn't. Or maybe you're just feeling stuck wherever you are in life. As we reflect on 2023, we therefore have hopes for the new year. We hope for fulfillment of that unfulfilled desire. We hope for victory over sin. We hope that this is the year we'll finally stick with that exercise routine we've been resolving for. We hope for peace and unity in the church amidst an election year. Perhaps you have a preferred candidate in the upcoming elections that you hope will win. We hope for peace on a global scale, an end to the human suffering in multiple wars. We hope for an end to the racial tensions we've been experiencing here in the U.S. We hope that our friend or relative that we've been sharing the gospel with will repent and place his or her faith in Jesus. We hope for our kids to obey, to mature, to succeed. So as we turn to Jeremiah 32... We see here that Jeremiah was also reflecting on what had happened in the past and hoping in the future. So Jeremiah, at the start of chapter 32, has some extra time in his life to reflect because he's been imprisoned as a result of his preaching. And he has a lot to reflect on because he's been proclaiming God's judgment for nearly 40 years, and that judgment is finally coming to pass. And yet, strangely, Despite all of this judgment and imprisonment, God has told him to prophesy about hope for the future. 
And so as we're going to see in our text today, Jeremiah is wrestling with the question, why should I have hope? I think that's a very relevant question for us as we go into the new year. Will next year be better? What basis do I have for hoping in the new year? So let's take a look at Jeremiah's conversation with God. We're going to see in the final week of our Advent series that one of the gifts that Jesus came into the world to provide was the gift of hope. So before we jump directly in, I want to set us in the context because we're jumping in the middle of the book of Jeremiah here. Jeremiah was a prophet in the Old Testament prophesying just before Judah was conquered by Babylon and taken into exile, and he continued to prophesy into the early days of the exile. By the time we pick up in chapter 32, Jeremiah has been prophesying for not quite 40 years. As a prophet, Jeremiah has been speaking on God's behalf, bringing a message from God. If you pay attention as we walk through the text, you're going to see a repeated phrase, the word of the Lord, the word of the Lord, declares the Lord over and over again. Jeremiah is not just sharing his wise thoughts and opinions and good advice. He has a message directly from God. God used Jeremiah to speak to his people in the time of Jeremiah, and God ordained that that message would be written down so that he can speak to us through it in the present day. Jeremiah's preaching, as recorded in the book of Jeremiah, has focused on a few main themes. He's called the people to recall and be faithful to their covenant with God. And he's sharply critiqued their departure from the covenant, in particular their rampant idolatry and worship of foreign gods. And in light of that departure from the covenant, he has repeatedly proclaimed God's coming judgment and wrath. But amidst that, he has had some messages of hope. Although God's judgment may seem final, God has further plans for his chosen, chosen people. And the culmination of the hope message is the famous promise that you may be familiar with from Jeremiah 31, just one chapter before where we are, where God promises to make a new covenant with the people of Israel because they broke the previous covenant. He will make a new one where he writes the law on their hearts and forgives their sins. So that's the immediate context in our minds as we jump into Jeremiah chapter 32. And we get to the beginning, we, set, we see, as I said at the beginning, that Jeremiah's circumstances are not good. Take a look at chapter 32, verse 2. At that time, the army of the king of Babylon was besieging Jerusalem, and Jeremiah the prophet was shut up in the court of the guard and was in the palace of the king of Judah. So Jeremiah's prophecies are coming to pass. The Babylonian army, the instrument of God's judgment against his rebellious people, are quite literally at the gate, and Jerusalem is under siege. Now, Jeremiah was not an, aha, I told you so, sort of prophet. You may be familiar with the story of Jonah, who really wanted to see God's judgment come down on his enemies and was reprimanded by God for not showing forgiveness. Jeremiah is the extreme opposite of that sort of prophet. He's sometimes called the weeping prophet because of his tearful entreaties for the people to repent. He loved his city of Jerusalem, and he preached faithfully not to proclaim judgment out of some self-righteousness, but because he really desired that people would return and repent and be restored to God. And he's been doing that for 40 years, and now it's too late. It's over. The people refuse to repent. God's judgment is here, and any hope that Jeremiah might have had seems dashed. And remember, his grief is not just for his nation. It's personal because he's been thrown in prison. As we see in verses 3 through 5, Jeremiah has been faithfully, because Jeremiah has been faithfully proclaiming God's message, he is viewed as a traitor harming the morale of the people by claiming that the Babylonian army 
will be victorious and the king of Judah will be defeated. Amidst this, we get something quite unexpected, a real estate transaction. God tells Jeremiah that his cousin Hanamel will come and offer to sell him a field. And in accordance with God's command, Jeremiah buys this field. And the text goes way out of its way to tell us that this was a real public real estate transaction. This is not purely a symbolic metaphor, although God's going to use it to show us something. And it's not a handshake agreement behind closed doors. Jeremiah dots the I's and crosses the T's on the paperwork. He completes the transaction publicly, and he assures that it's registered with the proper authorities. The point is that Jeremiah's hope is not vague and abstract. It's real, it's concrete, and it's sealed for the future. Now, Jeremiah probably got a pretty good deal on this field. His cousin Hanamel seems a little bit desperate to sell, for pretty good reason. (laughs) You know, the, the army. When the market has plummeted, sometimes that's a good time to buy. I looked up, if you bought real estate, the average median home in the U.S. at 2012, at the bottom of the real estate market during the 2008 crash, then if you held it till now, you would have made a 140% return on your money. That's pretty good. But see, the buy low strategy only works if the market eventually recovers. If this fall, you had said, hey, Bed Bath & Beyond is down 90%, I think that's going to work out well. Well, I got bad news for you. Bed Bath & Beyond says that shareholders are likely to receive nothing after they emerge from bankruptcy. Jeremiah's purchase of his cousin's field looks an awful lot more like it's going to turn out to be Bed Bath & Beyond than it looks like it's going to be the 2012 housing market. The field he bought was probably pretty far outside Jerusalem, which means that the army besieging Jerusalem has already at this time occupied the fields. This isn't a field that's about to be conquered. This is a field that has already been conquered. And in fact, the entire collapse of the Judean government looks pretty inevitable. And it's not just that Jeremiah is looking at a situation and saying this looks inevitable. Jeremiah has a certain word from the Lord that the Babylonians will conquer his kingdom. The Babylonians are extremely unlikely to go, oh, you have a signed deed? I didn't realize you had a signed deed. Sure, here's your field. The Babylonians are conquering. It's the Babylonians' field now. They're going to decide what gets done with it. So on the surface, Jeremiah's deed is worthless from the moment he bought it. But God has a purpose in commanding Jeremiah into what seems like a bad financial plan. Jeremiah's hope is not in his superior real estate investing skills. It's in the word of God, and God promises hope for the future. Verse 15 is a summary statement of the first 15 verses. Jeremiah bought a field because the exile will not last forever. The exiles will return. And verse 15 says, houses and fields and vineyards shall again be bought in this land. Now, Jeremiah has some follow-up questions. He was faithful. He bought the field, but he's confused. He has the question. He says, God, I know you just commanded me to have hope but I don't see what the cause for hope there is. So he takes his request to God, which is a great example for us, by the way, right? When we're unsure why we should have hope, we should probably take that to God in prayer. So Jeremiah's prayer starts with three reasons that we should have hope and ends with one big reason why it seems like we shouldn't have hope, or we actually shouldn't have hope according to this. Um, His first reason for hope is that God is powerful. Look at verse 17. Jeremiah says, Ah, Lord God, it is you who have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and by your outstretched arm. Nothing is too hard for you. God is creator. He made the heavens and the earth. 
Nothing that we are tempted to lack hope about is beyond God's power. This Babylonian army that seems powerful is nothing compared to the creator of the heavens and the earth. As his second reason for hope, Jeremiah mentions God's character. God is loving and just. Now, Jeremiah uses the same language here that comes from Exodus 34, when Moses asked God to show him his glory. And the text in Exodus 34 says, The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. So Jeremiah's prayer uses scripture to call to mind what God has revealed about his own character. And Jeremiah's third reason for hope is that that character has been revealed in God's actions. He enumerates three specific things. First, God performed signs and wonders when the people were in bondage in Egypt. Second, he brought the people out of Egypt. And third, he brought them into the very land where they are now. Note that everything Jeremiah mentioned comes from the first five books of the Bible, the law. And see, that's exactly the problem. God is creator. God is compassionate and just. As he reveals to Moses, God brought the people out of Egypt. That's the basis for God's covenant with Israel. And the people have broken that covenant. Despite prophet after prophet being sent by God to call the people to repentance, including Jeremiah himself for the last 40 years, the people have refused to turn back to God. Verse 23, he says, they entered and took possession of it. That's the land. But they did not obey your voice or walk in your law. They did nothing of all you commanded them to do. Therefore, you have made all this disaster come upon them. So God upheld his end of the bargain. He brought the people into the land. But the people failed to uphold theirs by keeping their covenant and following the law. God was patient for many years, but now in his justice, he's calling them to account. The siege mounds are at the gates. In light of the people's rebellion, Jeremiah's three reasons for hope really become three reasons for despair. Judah hasn't sinned against an earthly king that they might just run away and escape from. They've sinned against the all-powerful creator of the universe. God is compassionate, but he's also just, and their sin demands punishment. And God perfectly and fully upheld his portion of the covenant. He was faithful to bring them out of Egypt into the promised land. So as covenant breakers, Judah is without hope and without excuse. Jeremiah doesn't doubt God's power or God's character or God's past graces. He doubts man's deservedness. The question sometimes gets asked, if God is all-powerful and all-good, why do bad things happen to good people? Note that that's not Jeremiah's question here. He's saying, no, I know we're not good people. This is not bad things happening to good people. This is bad things happening to bad people. That's just. So why should a God who's all-powerful and perfectly just do anything other than destroy us in his wrath? So before we move on and see God's response to Jeremiah's prayer, I do want to highlight again what a great example this is for us. If you're feeling like there isn't hope, take it to God in prayer. Jeremiah doesn't put on a nice face and say, well, the Christian's hope is in God, and act, therefore, like all his problems should just go away. He might be tempted to do that. He knew all the right answers. He knows God is powerful. God is loving and just. God has blessed his people in the past. But he also knows what he's been preaching in his 40 years of ministry. 
the people have broken God's covenant and fully deserve God's wrath. He stood at the city gate and watched the same people who claimed with their lips multiple times that they repented and would follow God's law continue to break that law by going about doing work on the Sabbath. He's seen the people reject the Lord, who has been so good to them, to go after worshiping false gods. He's seen child sacrifice performed among God's people. So he cries out and he says, God, I don't understand. Look at verse 25. He says, Yet you, Lord God, have said to me, Purchase the fields and call in witnesses, even though the city has been handed over to the Chaldeans. He doesn't even ask a question, right? He doesn't say, why God? He just says, God, it's hopeless. What are you doing? He doesn't say, what are you doing, actually. He implies it. Um, that's the implication. But know what else Jeremiah does. He cites God's character. He quotes scripture. And he was faithful to what God had told him to do. This isn't a, God, I'll buy that field as long as you give me a clear answer as to why. Faithfully, he buys the field, and then he goes to God in prayer. And in this instance, God chooses to grant Jeremiah and us an answer to his prayer. So he starts in verse 27 by affirming what Jeremiah has said. Behold, I am the Lord, the God of all flesh. Is anything too hard for me? Therefore, thus says the Lord, behold, I am giving this city into the hands of the Chaldeans and into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and he shall capture it. Jeremiah is right. God is powerful and just, and judgment's coming. God continues in verses 29 through 35 to enumerate the sins of the land of Judah. I count nine. Nine different things in these verses that God enumerates. They've made altars to Baal and worshipped other gods, all while claiming that they worship the one true God. Verse 30 says, they have done nothing but evil in my sight from their youth. They provoke God to anger. They have not listened to instruction. They put altars to other gods directly in the temple. Note where their idols are, are highlighted as being here. He highlights there are idols in their homes and in God's temple. Like exactly the two places that you least want idols. And finally, in verse 35, they built the high places of Baal, in the valley of the son of Hinnom, to offer up their sons and daughters to Molech. Though I did not command them, nor did it enter into my mind that they should do this abomination to cause Judah to sin. They're engaging in the barbaric practice of child sacrifice in their worship of other gods. This is the sort of pattern that Hosea preached about a generation before of a bride who constantly goes after other men as the groom tearfully calls her back. The people are wicked, They have refused to repent for generation after generation, despite huge amounts of patience and calls to repentance from their God. And now judgment is at their doorstep. But praise God, there is more to the story. Look at verse 37. This should be shocking. Behold, I will gather them from all the countries to which I have drove them in my anger and my wrath and in great indignation. I will bring them back to this place and I will make them dwell in safety. What? Why? How? The people of Judah are rebellious, wicked, covenant breakers, and God is perfectly just. Why, God? How? Verses 39 through 41 answer that. I will give them one heart and one way that they may fear me forever for their own good and the good of their children after them. I will make with them an everlasting covenant that I will not turn away from doing good to them, and I will put the fear of me in their hearts that they may not turn from me. I will rejoice in doing them good. 
and I will plant them in this land in faithfulness with all my heart and with all my soul. Because Israel is disobedient and continues to be disobedient, they need righteousness from elsewhere. They don't need more laws. They don't need more reminders of the law. Jeremiah's 40-year ministry, which follows the ministry of other prophets like Isaiah, Hosea, Amos before him, Elijah and Elisha before that, that minis- those ministries show that simply calling to repent- people to repentance might work for a little while, but we're wicked to our course, and we go back to our wickedness. What we need is not behavior modification. What we need is new hearts. Look at verses 37 through 41 again. I count the words I or my 14 times across those four verses. I only see one sentence in the whole section where God is not the subject, and that's, they shall be my people. Look at the end of verse 41. This is great. I will plant them in this land in faithfulness with all my heart and with all my soul. If you're familiar with the Bible, that might remind you of something. What Jesus said is the greatest commandment is Deuteronomy 6.5. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. The people didn't do that. They went through the motions of worshiping God, all the while making offerings to Baal on their roofs. And we don't do that either. It's easy to show up at church every week, pay some lip service to God, and go on living how you like. That's exactly what the people of Judah were doing. It wasn't that they'd completely renounced their God. They just wanted to worship both God and idols. They wanted to pick and choose which commandments to follow. We are so apt to do the same thing as we bow to the functional idols of career, self-reliance, and people-pleasing, saying that we trust God, that our hope is in God, but functionally relying on ourselves. We go after sensual pleasures, indulging a little here and there and saying, what's the harm? We seek our own gain at the expense of others. Ultimately, we often try to love the Lord our God with some of our heart and soul and might. Maybe on a good week, we get as far as most of our heart, soul, and might. But we all fall short of loving God with all our heart, soul, and might. And so God has to do that for us. Part of our reason for hope is that God is powerful and good and has been faithful in the past. But that's not sufficient because we deserve wrath. So that God can bless his people, he makes them righteous in order to bless them. And he does that through the incarnation by becoming righteousness for us. This was spelled out more explicitly one chapter back. Flip your Bible back like one page. Look at Jeremiah 31, verses 27 through 40. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. Why? For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. Thus says the Lord, who gives the sun for light by day and the fixed order of the moon and stars for light by night, who stirs up the sea so that its waves roar. The Lord of hosts is his name. If this fixed order departs from before me, declares the Lord, then shall the offspring of Israel cease from being a nation before me forever. Thus says the Lord, 
If the heavens above can be measured and the foundations of the earth below can be explored, then I will cast off all the offspring of Israel for all that they have done, declares the Lord. A few things to note about this passage. It hits on exactly the same thing we see here, same theme we see here a chapter later. The people broke the covenant, so they need a new one that God can keep for them. How does this new covenant work? It says God will forgive iniquity and no longer remember sin. Why? Because God has made promises to his people. Even when his people are unfaithful, God is faithful, even at cost to himself. This is what Jesus was talking about at the Last Supper when he said, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Jesus is the means by which we can have hope. Because we are sinners, we deserve wrath and judgment. But Jesus came to live the holy life that we couldn't so that his righteousness could be written on our hearts. Hebrews 4, 14 through 16 says, Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted with as we are, yet without sin. Let us then, with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. Our confidence is built on Christ's sinless life. And this is the message of the gospel, right? We have we have sinned, we have broken God's covenant, and as a result, we deserve God's wrath. We can't on our own earn our way into God's good graces. And so that's why Jesus came into the world so that he could live that perfect life we couldn't. And he can earn. He actually has the ability to earn his way into God's good graces. But what did he do with that life? He said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. He went to the cross. He took our sinfulness with him on the cross so he could shed his blood to inaugurate this new covenant so that his righteousness can be placed upon us. In our union with Christ, God looks at us those who have put, repented and placed their faith in Jesus, and he sees Christ's righteousness, which enables us to receive the blessings that God promises to give. If you are here and you don't know Jesus, maybe you came here specifically because you're looking for hope. If you feel as though there's often not a reason for hope, I agree with you. The world is hard. God is sovereign and he's good, but we are not. We don't deserve a future hope. We deserve to be cast out as exiles. But I have good news. A new heart is available. God can implant Christ's righteousness in you so that you too can have a future hope. If you'd like to know more about that, come talk with me after the service or talk with a friend that brought you or talk with anyone that you saw up on this stage. We'd love to talk to you about that. For the Christians in the room, rejoice that you have hope. Not in yourselves, not in your circumstances, but in what Jesus has done for you. We have a promise from God. Like the promise to the Israelites that houses and fields and vineyards would again be bought and sold in the land, we have a promise that Jesus has gone away to prepare a home for us. This promise is certain because God is creator and he is powerful. This promise is certain because God is compassionate and just. This promise is certain because God has kept his promises in the past. He brought his people out of Egypt. And this promise is certain because he kept his promise to bring his people out of bondage and sin in the new covenant 
through Jesus. Jump back to Jeremiah 32 and take a look at verse 42. For thus says the Lord, Just as I have brought all this great disaster upon this people, so I will bring upon them all the good that I promised them. Because nothing is too difficult for God, he can bring disaster and he can bring blessing. He desires to bring blessing, and since we can't fulfill our covenant obligations, he fulfills them himself in order to bring about the good he promised. Let's get specific on some points of application from this passage. I have three suggestions this morning. Suggestion one, don't put your hope in your circumstances in the new year. This is something I've been finding really convicting as I've uh, been studying this text and writing this sermon. It happens when you, when you go to preach. You study a text for a while, and God starts working on your heart more than you expected. Um, it's easy to say, well, in 2024, I expect this will change, or my life will be better. Or in 2024, I'll do this differently. And we keep our hope on things that we think we can accomplish. Personally, I'm expecting a child in 2024. Children are a joy and a blessing from the Lord, and it's really easy for me to let my hope rest on that. To think, look at the purpose and meaning that raising a child is going to give my life. But a child is not ultimately going to satisfy me. If our hope is in our circumstances or in ourselves, those things will ultimately fail us. This is the time of year that many of us often make New Year's resolutions. This may be an excellent practice. I'm not anti-New Year's resolution. I'm not overly pro-New Year's resolution either, but to each his own. Perhaps you, like many Americans, may want to exercise more or eat better. Perhaps you want to start or improve a Bible reading or prayer habit. Those are good things. Or maybe the thing you're hoping for in the new year doesn't seem in your control. Maybe you're hoping for a change in circumstances and into some medical issue, a spouse or a child, a job or a location change, your preferred candidate to win in November, your stock portfolio to go up. Regardless of our sensation of control, Jeremiah reminds us that we are not in control. God is. Is anything too difficult for him? So yes, do try to make positive change in your life. Not against that. But don't rest your hopes on your ability to do so. Don't hope that a changed circumstance will be better in the new year. Maybe it will. Maybe it won't. Instead, Christian, put your hope in God, who is powerful, good, just, and has proven himself in the past. One practical thing you can do this afternoon is to pray through your New Year's resolutions. Praise God for who he is and what he's done. Meditate on the fact that you can't achieve those resolutions on your own and pray that God would be the one to enable you to do them. Meditate on the fact that if you do achieve those resolutions, they will not ultimately satisfy. Pray that God would be your ultimate greater hope. If you didn't make any New Year's resolutions, great. Do the same for your hopes in the coming year. Is there a circumstance you hope will change? Take it to God. Pray that your hope would be in him regardless of the circumstance. Pray that, you would bring a, pray that he would bring about the circumstance in the way that you desire, absolutely. But emulate Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane by praying, your will be done. And pray that God would teach you how to be content regardless of your circumstances. And that he would redirect your attention to your ultimate circumstance as a sinner in need of grace, which is given by the cross of Christ. Suggestion number two, God is a worthy target of our hope. Recall Jeremiah's prayer. God is creator, God is loving and just, God has kept his promises in the past. Pick a specific aspect of that to meditate on in the new year. Presumably Jeremiah was doing this, right? He was meditating on this. He had memorized scripture about this. We can do that too. 
Memorize a passage of scripture to dwell on who God is and what he's done. Let that passage just roll over in your mind over and over again in the new year. If you want some suggestions, you don't have to take either of these, but here's two suggestions of a passage of scripture you could consider memorizing in 2024. Perhaps you could emulate Jeremiah and memorize God's statement of self-revelation in Exodus 34, 5 through 7. It's a wonderful passage to dwell on the character of God. Or perhaps you could memorize a psalm dwelling on who God is and what he's done. A few years ago, the men of my community group came together and memorized Psalm 33 as a group. It sits on these exact themes about the character of God and what God has done in the past, and it's a really great psalm to just meditate on. Suggestion three, hope in the second coming. Jeremiah's hope wasn't in an immediate relief from the invading army. He knew they were conquering, right? It's a future hope that houses and fields and vineyards will again be brought in the land. It was a hope in God's future promises. Even when things seem bleak in the moment, God has a future plan for his people, that they will be his people and he will be their God, that they will fear him forever for their own good and the good of their children after him. We read from a moment ago from Jeremiah 31, if the heavens above can be measured and the foundations of the earth below can be explored, then I will cast off all the offspring of Israel for all that they have done. It's an absolute wonder of modern technology that we barely managed to send the Voyager probe outside of our solar system, which means that we have scratched the bare surface of measuring one star in the universe. I did a little bit of looking up the other day. There's an estimated 100 to 400 billion, with a B, stars just in the Milky Way galaxy. Scientists estimate that there are at least 100 billion other galaxies besides the Milky Way in the part of the universe that we can theoretically observe. Note the theoretically observe, because we don't know what's beyond that. The light from the farther parts of the universe hasn't had enough time in the history of the universe to get to us. So we can't even see those parts, let alone thoroughly measure them. So God says, once you're done exploring all of that, get back to me and see if my promises have failed yet. In other words, God will never cast off his people. Now, maybe you've been wondering, if God brought back his people to the land based on new hearts through Christ's righteousness, don't you have a timing issue here? Didn't they return from exile hundreds of years before Jesus came? Yes, they did. And isn't that exactly how God brought his people out of Egypt? He didn't say, go keep the covenant for a while, and then I'm going to bring you out of Egypt. He brought them out and then commanded them to keep the covenant. So in the same way with the exile, he brought them back, and then he kept the covenant in himself in the person of Christ. And now, like the returned exiles, we have a down payment on God's promises, but we await their full consummation when Christ returns. Jesus ascended into heaven, but he's coming back again. And we can have certainty of this for the reasons we've been recounting from Jeremiah 32. God is the all-powerful creator of the universe. He can bring it about. God is good and God is just. It's in his character to bring it about. And God has shown himself faithful in the past. He brought his people out of Egypt. He brought his people into the land. He kept his promise to Jeremiah here to restore the exiles to the land. We know now historically that houses and fields and vineyards were again bought and sold in the land. 
He kept his promise to send a forever king in the line of David that Jesus was. He kept his promise to have Jesus die on the cross to give us new hearts. And the best part is we can't mess it up. There's nothing that we can do to break this because God, through Jesus, made a new covenant that isn't dependent on our ability to be righteous. It's dependent on Jesus' ability to be righteousness, to be righteous. And so we hope in the second coming. I'm going to leave you today with Romans 8, verses 18 through 25. It says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with the eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subject to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we eagerly wait for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes in what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Jeremiah was hoping in what he didn't see, right? Jeremiah did not live another 70 years to come back and farm his houses and fields and vineyard. He waited for the future hope of return. In that same way, we are saved in hope. The sufferings of today are not worth comparing with the glory of Christ's return. Our hope of that is certain. And since we don't yet see it, we wait in patience. So in 2024, as you're tempted to place your hope in circumstances, call to mind that this life is fleeting. Christ is coming, maybe in 2024, who knows? Christ's incarnation was a down payment on our future hope in his return. So as we embark in a new year, recall first Christ's first coming as you hope in his return. We endure this world for the time being, but houses, fields, and vineyards will again be bought in this land.